Time to pull out your Bible if you have one or if you need one. There's plenty in the back of the room at the usher's stations on either side. And if you really need one, take it home with you. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, a short paragraph where we had left off. Uh, verses 32 through 34 of Luke chapter 12. As you're turning in your Bibles, let me welcome those who might be joining our live stream today or watching the service later. Uh, God bless you for uh, paying attention to his word. We also invite you to be among his people here. We'll be reading this text from the English Standard Version, which is part of the Bible translations in the lineage of the King James Bible. Uh, into modern English, the ESV. Starting in verse 32, we read these words of Jesus. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. May the Lord bless the hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. Amen. This is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. When I was first installed as a pastor, my One of my former pastors wrote this to me in a note. Uh, That's many, many years ago. I last preached on this text uh, in March 2020. But I preached in this pulpit to an empty room. There was a video camera sitting right there, and I didn't even know how to get the sound right. So if you go back and listen to it, it's, it's rough on the sound. It was the first Sunday doing church remotely during COVID. And I thought, what word does God's people, uh, what word do we need to hear in this new and strange environment in which we found ourselves? I called it a season of adversity, and that became the first sermon of over two dozen sermons. And I felt much helped by God in that season, even though sermons are being delivered through technology The onset of the COVID crisis, sermons in a season of adversity. Well, here we stand in 2023. Phew, aren't we glad the times are easy and nothing's wrong with life today. We understand a lot more about COVID, and I don't think anybody's shutting us down ever again. But times are always challenging. This world is not the heaven we long for. Our hearts long for that day of rest, it will come. That our hearts long for a place of peace and peace in all our relationships, that day will come. And it's on its way and it's manifest already in the life of God's people. But we live in difficult days. There are wars. There are acts of terror. There are political machinations and gridlock. Who would have thought what we're seeing? And we don't know what's over the horizon, what another year or two will bring. But we do know that the unchanging word of God is to be preached to God's people, even in changing times. Our fears and our uncertainties need to submit to the word of God. And it's a joy to open it for you today. And I'm just so thankful, too. The Lord gives us Sundays to gather Whatever the trouble is to gather in this place, we often call it a sanctuary in his presence to receive his blessing. 
and to remind ourselves of his power and his care. Let's hear some good news. Because as one writer, author, evangelist I follow, David Robertson, says, sometimes when you're in the middle of a crisis, the best thing to do is also the hardest, to step back and take a look at the bigger picture. The urgency of the immediate, he says, and the sense of an approaching catastrophe can cause us instinctively to focus or fixate on the danger at hand and not see anything else. But there's a lot to see. And number one on the list is to see a God who wants to be known as a father who cares. Jesus here tells us the secret of conquering our anxieties, as well as telling us not to worry, says David Jackson. It is Jesus does this by setting our human needs within the larger framework of God's fatherly care. The command comes in that context. Let's take a look. We're going to spend a lot of time on verse 32 and then less time on 33 and 34. We'll just take it word by word because this is the foundation for what Jesus is telling us. Uh, The first word is fear. The first word is fear. And we need to see that Jesus understands our fear because he addresses it. He's speaking primarily to his disciples, even as a large crowd had gathered. He's heading to Jerusalem. He knows what's awaiting. The troubles that they're experiencing now, which includes some danger and opposition, not only from the mob, but from those who are plotting against them. He knows what will come after Palm Sunday. He knows the pressure cooker that Peter will be in, in the courtyard. He will know that persecution will follow, and all but one of those original apostles will die a martyr's death. And he says, fear not. Jesus understands our fears. It's the first thing of this passage. And it's been a part of this ongoing chapter. Do you remember at the beginning of chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. Jesus has been addressing the pressures of discipleship and the physical real dangers we face. There are a lot of different fears you face in the world. Some people have fear of snakes or even a mouse in the house can cause a shriek and a reaction of fear or a bee flying by. Jesus is looking a bit beyond that. Jesus is looking at the the fear of persecution and physical harm that can come for serving him. And Jesus understands and he addresses it here. Don't overlook that. The reason Jesus starts speaking on this topic is because he sees your heart. He sees that flutter. He sees the tremors. He knows the sleepless nights and the tossing and turning. What is going to come if I obey the Lord? Could I lose my job? Would a family member ever speak to me? We, Jesus understands. He's no stranger to this. That's the first point. Fear is natural to man, says theologian John Brodus. But lesser fear must give way to the greater fear. There's an expulsive power when you decide to fear God most of all. I know there's a lot of things that are pushing and pulling me, 
but there's one to whom I must give account. One who really should affect my decisions most of all. That's God. And notice here, we're not talking about the fear of spiders or dark places or, or war or terror. I know the United States is supposed to be on a little bit elevated alert because of the dangers in these days, especially to people of faith, Jews or Christians. But instead of the, just the physical fear, I think we need to make sure that Jesus is addressing this fear we have when we know we should obey him in some way and we hesitate. We're afraid to say something for the Lord in our witnessing. Or we're afraid to challenge sin where we think we see it. When we have this fear of obeying or taking a step of obedience. And why would we fear that? Well, we fear the consequences. That fear is real, but it is to be overcome. And this command can service God's people in that area as well. Under fear, we need to see what Jesus is doing here in this command. He redirects us from fear to faith. Keep looking. You won't see the word faith here, but it's present in concept. Let's read it again. Verse 32. Fear not, little flock. He's speaking to Christians. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, don't fear as Christians because you have God as your father and he's going to take care of you. Is not that a call to a greater fear or a call, as we would rather put it, to faith in God? If you have this relationship, why do you scurry about as though you did not? Fear not. It's a command. Jesus wants us to go from the horizontal that can buffet us and anchor ourselves in the vertical, our relationship with God as our Father in heaven. Old Testament scholar Jim Johnson has written when he was reflecting on Psalm 34, which has very similar themes. He said, the great secret here is that if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. And if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. It's rough out there if you're not a believer. In order to reduce or eliminate this fear of persecution or death, you look to God. You stand in awe of him. You remember his power, and you don't want to be on his wrong side. Whatever your phobias are, we're not talking about those in particular. We're talking about bigger issues. Revere God, fear him, and put your faith in him. One scholar said, take God seriously and grant him the honor he deserves as your sovereign. He's not just your father, but he has power to help. And I don't want our fear to be misunderstood. I've always liked how Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of uh, uh, London back in the last uh, century or so, who started preaching at age 15. So he was probably childlike in his appearance when he gave his first speech in Water Beach in England. He said, fear is childlike reverence. Pay to him humble childlike reverence. Walk in his laws. Have respect to his will. Tremble to offend him. Hasten to serve him. Fear not the wrath of man. Neither be tempted to sin through the hostility of their threats. But fear God and nothing else. 
Spurgeon is, is wise beyond his years when he said that. Perhaps he knew what uh, Solomon the Wise wrote at the end, the conclusion to that great book of Ecclesiastes. What an enigma, but sometimes we don't understand the whole book of Ecclesiastes, but parts of it make great sense right off the bat. As we mentioned yesterday at the wedding, uh, uh, two are better than one, and a strand of three cords is not easily broken. That was the wedding text. We know from Ecclesiastes that there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And that list covers a lot. And sometimes seasons come that we may not want to come, but they come and we deal with it. The end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, one of his great summary statements is this, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Interesting. Fear God and keep his commandments. It's a call in that Old Testament language to faith in God, first and foremost, a serious faith, a faith that controls not only your words and deeds, but your emotions that will harness and direct and refocus you from fear to faith. So that's the first heading, fear. The second heading is little flock. Jesus said, fear not, little flock. He doesn't say, hey, guys, hey, disciples, fear not. He calls them a little flock. Who is this? Who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to us. He's not speaking to everyone. He's speaking to disciples, followers of Jesus, those that are following him. Perhaps they already remembered what Jesus taught, recorded in John, uh, John's gospel, that he is a good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and follow him. Jesus knew he had followers. He's speaking to them as a flock. You are my flock. Are you in the flock of Jesus Christ? I think there's one clear litmus test uh, for someone to understand if they're in the flock of God. Do you know and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Could you say with David who wrote Psalm 23 that we just sang, the Lord is my shepherd. Usually we think the most important word is shepherd. Right now, I think the most important word is, is he your shepherd? We know he's a shepherd. Is he your shepherd? Well, what would that mean if he's my shepherd? Wouldn't it mean that I go where he wants me to go and I do what he wants me to do and I turn to him with my fear? I turn to him for comfort and help. Is that true of you? Are you one of his sheep? Do you follow him? Do you hear his voice and do you know him? Or are you watching the flock? Kind of standing apart from the flock because some of the sheep in the flock are odd and you're just a little bit standoffish. Hopefully the Lord is your shepherd. I think it is. I know your stories, many of you. We can say with a different psalmist, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. In Psalm 100 verse 3, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. That's the testimony of God's people. We are his flock. But wait, why does Jesus just, he doesn't just say, uh, fear not my flock. He calls them a little flock. What's with that? Is he putting them down? He's not mocking them. Rather, he's showing his care by calling them a little flock. 
They were small in number, and in that crowd and in that day, as the gospel had just arrived with Christ, they were uh, marginalized. They weren't widely known. The first century, it, it looks, uh, uh, how would we say it? It looks a little dicey. How are these 12 guys and the followers, maybe 120 people, what are they going to do with this good news to reach the ends of the earth? It's a stupendous story of the power of God to go from like 100 people to the ends of the earth. Those first few centuries are a marvel, and we ought to take courage how God did it. But Jesus calls his flock little to show his tenderness and to identify with the flock that may feel marginalized, that may feel vulnerable. When we see a a vast army arrayed, we see their strength. When we see sheep gathered, we probably don't think strength. There's that reality that we're dependent creatures. Who's going to feed us? Who's going to lead us? In the world, faith is viewed as folly and weakness. Prayer is held in open contempt, even by elected officials in our government, by people in our community, by people at work. I heard just the other day a pastor I follow on social media was sad. He was at a restaurant and bowed his head with his two little girls and they were giving thanks for the food. A woman at the booth next to them started mocking them and making noises of ridicule. Why? Because we're a little flock. We're marginalized in this world. But although we're little in the eyes of the world, we see also from this verse that we're precious in the eyes of God. That expression, come here, little one, is part of the tenderness of this verse that Jesus communicates to gather those sheep. Here, come, little flock. Fear not. They're there, little one. Psalm 33 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. I like the testimony of the great saints who were able to keep their eyes on God amidst affliction. John Brown, one of the many John Browns in Scotland back in the 1880s, uh, was on, uh, being challenged for his faith. And he made this uh, statement about those who do fear the Lord. He says, it matters little to them, to us, that the world frowns on them if he, God, smiles. And it matters little to them that the world smiles If God frowns. The great call of this passage is to live not for the applause of men, but for the approval of your master and the pleasure of your God, your father. That's what Jesus is saying. It's time to to own your faith in God. He's talking to these disciples. It's a little rough now. We're, We're jostled in the world and there's real danger approaching. You don't know what's ahead But fear not, your father is here. Pointing out this word little ought to be a reminder to us and make sure to explain to your children that to be a Christian in the world is to be viewed as little, but never be deceived by appearances. As a kid, I was always told good things come in small packages. I really like the big packages. A really big box is a stunner, isn't it? Ooh! 
But don't be deceived by appearances. We can be little in the eyes of the world, but to God we are precious. Let's turn next to the Father. Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's talk about this giving Father. He gives us a kingdom. What is the kingdom? Well, simply put, we won't have time to expand in all that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is, the kingdom of God come to earth. It is life under the rule and blessing of the Lord. Life lived under the rule and blessing of the Lord. When you become a Christian, you're born again, you desire to do God's will, you're part of the kingdom, and you want to live under the rule of God, and you want the blessings of the kingdom, and you want to do the work of the kingdom. And the kingdom comes with each new convert. The kingdom comes with each faithful church doing what it can. It began in the Garden of Eden, walking with God. And it began as God's people went into the promised land and King David set up his political kingdom. We're not going to see that again on earth, a political kingdom of believers. We've read the book of Revelation. We know that things are going to get a little tough by the end. But that the kingdom of God will persevere because the rule in the hearts and minds of God's people does not matter whether we sit in uh, presidential chairs or the cabinets or at the head of armies. We serve the king of kings. And his kingdom is not of this world. And it is progressing. And when Jesus came, his first sermon was repent to believe the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here. How did we not catch on that he was pointing to himself? And as he gathers people to himself and establishes the church as we know it in the New Testament, that is the front lines of his kingdom's work in the world. I will build my church. And God gives us that. He gives us a place in that kingdom, in his, in his church, when we become Christians. Fear not, little flock of Christians. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, a place in the kingdom, an inheritance in the kingdom, and the resources of the king. We wear that insignia. Oh, the early days of watching the war in Ukraine erupt and and, and the peoples even sharing a common tongue. Many Ukrainians speak Russian and Russians. How do you tell which force is which in those close combats? Then finally they begin wearing colored armbands or, or pa- painting a symbol on their military vehicles to make sure they're identified with the right side. When you're in the kingdom, your Christ's likeness in your service for Christ shows you to be a child of God. It's given to us by the Father. How is it given? This kingdom, that's a pretty huge gift to have a place and role in the kingdom of God. It's not something we build by merit or religious works. It's a gracious gift of our Father in heaven. Salvation is a gracious gift. And the parallel is, as we come to Christ as Savior, so we come to the kingdom. That's how it's given. There aren't classes of Christians Oh, yeah, I've been a Christian a long time, but I'm not like those Christians that are really successful. We have a celebrity mindset in the United States. It doesn't help the church at all. And if you know, if you have a favorite celebrity preacher, quote unquote, I, I have a few guys that I think are really great and gifted. Pray for them in the spotlight of celebrity that they stay the course. Blessings and riches and honor and fame are really tough to carry. 
Well, how is this kingdom given? It's given as a gracious act of God our Father, like salvation. You should know this important passage from Ephesians 2. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read uh, that paragraph that talks about how salvation comes to us. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. I'll just read it through and, and give emphasis to the words as I read. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 from the ESV. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're saved by grace, by the kindness of God. I'd love to go off and preach about how Christians who share the gospel ought to do it kindly. Verse 8, here we go. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of work so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. It's God's work calling us, drawing us, bringing us to Christ. Our Father knows what we need. If you're not little flock, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He knows we need a savior. And that's where it starts. You may think, oh, I need a job. I need a car. I need a better retirement package. I need a wife. We, we, you know, we may think, oh, I know what I'm missing in life. And yeah, we need those things. But God knows what we need most of all. We need a savior. And we need a shepherd. And we need the one whom the shepherd gives us, the indwelling Holy Spirit, to help us, to lead us, to guide us, to encourage us. I was driving to church thinking of this important sermon, and now I'm going to hit my podcast or my playlist to get the last of my Sunday morning music. What a sweet line of a hymn from Abide With Me came on. And I just say, oh, Lord, I'm just feeling your love and presence and provision here. By God's grace, he gives us what we need most. And he is a wise father. We don't have to beg. We don't have to tug at his sleeve. Please, 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 please. He knows what we need. And he sends it. It's given by grace. By a wonderful father in heaven. Douglas Milne said, It is the father's nature to give. And this he has done right royally. That's the phrase I like. It's the Father's nature to give, and he has done this right royally in Jesus and the kingdom. What need of fear or worry then? He's right royally given. What, why does he throw that word in there? I'm not going to preach on the commentary, but he says, we've been given the Son of God, the Prince of Prince, the King of Kings. Where does anxiety and worry fit into that picture? We are reminded by Romans 8, is it Romans 8, one of the great gifts of God? Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with the gift of Christ, graciously give us all things? That is not just hyperbole. He sent his own son. 
His son laid on his life. He bled and died to bring you into the family of God. He is not going to let you go. He is going to care for you and shepherd you. He knows those fears and he will be at your side. He doesn't take away all the fears. He doesn't take away all the dark valleys. He is with us. And he gets the glory as we persevere. In our weakness, he is strong. This clay vessel is filled with the gift of the power of the gospel that Christ has brought. I love verse 32. Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But Jesus says a little bit more, so let's take a look. We won't spend as much time on this, but I have to point out, he adds it here. And it's a bit of a shocker. We're going to get the kingdom. We're going to get the kingdom. We have the kingdom. Let's just stop and sing a bit. Jesus goes on. He's speaking to these disciples and he says this, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is making a point. I think Jesus is saying, show your faith. Let's walk by faith. You really believe you have a father in heaven you don't need to fear? Sell some stuff. Help those needy people. Put yourself on the the line. Yeah. I had the opportunity the other day, I'm at the bank putting my paycheck in and they say, oh, we're, we're celebrating breast cancer. Do you want to make a donation? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm saving my money. I'm putting it in the bank. And you want me to give you more money? I said, yeah. In my case, my wife's a breast cancer survivor. Yeah, here's some money. We have opportunities, my friends, to walk by faith in so many ways. And these words may come as a surprise uh, in the teaching of Jesus. We say, is he serious? Do we take this literally? How about our first answer is yes. We take this literally. We take it as literally as when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Oh, we know that's, that's, that's really spiritual. I, I'm okay with that one. Take up your cross because I, I don't have any form of execution that I'm going to carry daily. It's the same type of thing. And to us rich Americans... This one may hurt more than the other. Take up your cross. That's kind of abstract. Sell your possessions. Put your money where your mouth is. Do you really trust your father? Jesus isn't saying, he's not some closet communist. He's not saying sell everything and live in a commune. That's a, that's a kooky interpretation of the Bible. The Bible supports private ownership of material. I'm a capitalist. I believe the Bible fits that worldview. But Christianity goes beyond capitalism. And it calls for sacrifice. It calls for real love of your neighbor in need. It says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. The word needy there is the serious term. Sell is simple. Give is simple. Used all the time. But the needy. That's the focus. The one in need. The one who really is hungry. The one who is really maybe going to lose their house. The one who needs your help. If we're walking by faith, 
Are you going to live different than the world? The world may give a little bit until it hurts. The Christian is to give until it helps. It'll hurt pretty quick because we all have that materialistic angle in our lives. But give till it helps. Give even when it costs. Good old commentator William Hendrickson, very reliable if you ever see his set of commentaries. He says, what Jesus is stressing is that God's children must not behave like the nations of the world. They must be distinctive in their thinking, speaking, and acting. I have a father in heaven. I am a part of this kingdom, not just this world. And so the way I behave, the way I save or spend, give or hold, depends on my father's pleasures. One illustration of giving in in college, uh, I I was a young believer as a freshman, and one of the seniors in our university group said, hey, you want a room with me? And I said, sure, because... I needed a roommate, and uh, anyways, we're rooming together. He's a really, really big wrestler. And one Friday night, uh, some guys next door had drunk too much, and one of the guys passed out. They came to us for help in the middle of the night. There's a knock on our dorm room. Okay, we're not really your best buddies. We didn't go out drinking. Why are you knocking on our door? Hey, I know you guys are Christians. Will you help me? It was Kevin and Tony. One had passed out, and he'd thrown up on himself in his bunk. Hollis picked him up, carried him down to the showers. This is old school. Walked right into the showers, hosed him off, woke him up. I changed the bedding. They came to us because you're Christians. You're supposed to be giving. And in that moment, you either give and behave as your father would have you or not. One illustration, walk by faith. Show your faith in how you help. Those God brings your way. I love what one source said in applying this passage. He said, only this vision of our heavenly father, combined with the promise of eternal riches, verse 33, can motivate us at the heart level to live free from the love of money and to find eternal joy in following Christ. There is a context for these commands, sell and give. Know the Father, trust the Father, and expect the Father to bless you and keep you. Hebrews 13, whoever wrote it, Hebrews 13, 5 is pretty blunt. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said. So there's a command about money, Hebrews 13, 5. Do you know what the reason is? for being content and not loving money? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Friends, if we know this father, if he's brought us into his kingdom, let's be done with fear. Fear of pain in the world or fear of obeying and doing the hard things. Let's trust him. And as we go, let's bless others. Sell and give to others. And and it goes on to say, set your heart on heaven. Set your heart on heaven. There's this expression, uh, give yourselves money bags that do not grow old. Okay, what's all that about? Here you go. The money bags that do not grow old, it's a metaphor, which means it's a figure of speech. He's not really saying, do you have one of those wallets? that? No, he's just saying, have this mindset. 
money bags. Keep your possessions in a place where they're most safe. It's a metaphor for the place one stores one's possessions. Because the believer's treasures are stored in heaven, the believer's money bag, the heavenly storehouse of his treasure, will never wear out, will never fail. It's safe from being stolen or destroyed. It's another way of saying, put your treasure in heaven. And where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Set your heart on heaven. Keep that heavenly perspective, the Christian perspective, all your days here on earth. When Jesus is telling us to turn from fear to faith in God, he's really also telling us to turn from the entanglement of money and things on earth to being entrusted in heaven. Invest in heavenly eternal things. They will pay. They will pay. And the legacy will bring glory to God. Well, what a passage. What a great promise. This verse 32 and then the the practical push of 34, 33 and 34. Let me close with a few exhortations to help us as we go and, and try to obey this word and try to please our Father and encourage him as we go forward together. First, hear. Hear God's loving words. Do you hear the tone throughout this whole passage? This call to trust a God who cares for you. Fear not, little flock, come here. When I meet a new grandchild, I know I'm this big imposing stranger, and I just can't wait to run up and hug him. It's your papa. Do you know God in such a loving way that there is no fear to come to him? Hear God's loving words. Know he cares. Picture Jesus as the shepherd. That shepherd who left the 99 to go for the one. His level of care is real and effective. Secondly, look. Look to the Lord more than the things of this life. Look to the Father. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ as you struggle with these commands. Be willing to let go and let God. I think that's a bumper sticker. Sorry, it got into the sermon. But part of that might be true. Let go and let God. It's really a call to faith. That's what we're talking about. Don't put your trust in how many resources you can garner and control. But is your faith in keeping step with the Spirit. Do not fear being in the world or its opposition, do not fear obeying the word of God when God says it's time for you to act. Don't fear the costs that your Christianity will incur. And there will be costs. The fear of God is at the heart of Christian well-being. It may sound strange. We don't talk about fear much, but remember it's a call to faith in God. A serious faith in a serious God. That's what the fear of God is about. It displays your faith in God. As verse 34 reminds us, where our treasure is, there will your heart be also. Treasure the Lord. Take him seriously. Finally, as we've heard from the final passages of the verse, give graciously to others as you walk by faith. Give graciously to others. We, we don't want to just take it figuratively. There's a literal side to this. We're going to, the Lord's looking for fruit. He wants to see the 
the faith, as James, I think he wrote a letter in the New Testament, said faith without works is dead. Okay, here's a faith check. Will you give to those in need? Well, I don't know this stranger. You've got to work out those details. The Holy Spirit will help you. There's wisdom to be had. But I, for me, I will err on the side of obeying. I don't usually give a lot of money to panhandlers. I try to do something that might help them more. But if the Spirit prompts you, you do what the Spirit prompts you to do. That's a small example. Because there are greater and larger ways to give. I remember somebody once gave me a car when our family was in real need. That wasn't just helpful for those years before we killed it. But a decade later, little Bissets have a memory of how God provides through his people. The love of a heavenly father through his people. One footnote to giving, because I don't want to create a, a crowd of Pharisees who try to give the most. The love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, doesn't count. Doesn't count. Jesus is not out simply to gather doers. He wants disciples. And in our giving, we show our love and our care. And hopefully we give the gospel as well. I'll give John, John's epistle the last word from 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the great gift. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for your word. We thank you that we always have your word. Or we hope we always have your word. We thank you for this word today. And I thank you, Lord, how your word comes with power to, to chip off the barnacles of our behavior, to help us see what you're calling us to do and to trust you in the midst of it all. Father, may we not overlook one part of your word to obey another part. Help us to hold it all together, your fatherly love and our trust and behavior before you. Father, may your spirit help us in all these things. Father, I pray particularly for those who feel burdened today to a new level of obedience, to take steps to serve you and to follow your spirit that they may have been afraid to take before. Father, give them wisdom, give them strength, guard them and protect them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.